Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Recently, Panzanella and Sons, a retailer in southern Manhattan, experienced extensive damage in Hurricane Sandy. We'll talk with Ryan Ibsen today about what the cleanup's been like and how the store has recovered. Ryan Ibsen of Passanella and Son on the show today. Hello, sir. Hello. Nice Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So, where are you guys located? We're on South Street in New York's South Street Seaport District, if you will. And that's um, uh, pretty close to the water. Yeah, absolutely. Very close to the water. How did that treat you during a hurricane recently? Not so well, actually. Uh, we uh, had about six and a half feet all the way through to the back. Uh, six and a half feet of water in the store. Six and a half feet of water. Uh, we had done probably Which Irene. Is as tall as me. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, we had, uh, we're just about to put a plaque in memoriam, actually, at the watermark. Um, but uh, we had done uh, Irene levels of preparation, basically, because we, we felt something was coming. There was the, the full moon quotient. There was, you know, high tide. There was, like, everything looked wrong. So we reluctantly, we held off for a little while because we just were still smarting from uh, pulling the store apart the year before. And uh, we decided that uh, it had to happen. So we started, you know, I guess probably about 36 hours in advance, like, you know, breaking down certain elements um, and ended up planning for, I, I guess, probably a, a luxurious four feet of water. Right, right. Uh, and uh, we, uh, we were wrong about that, actually. So it's, um, it's, it was uh, pretty bad. I mean, it was the next day. I was able to walk over the bridge and get there pretty early. And the, the one reason I was able to do that is that we don't have a basement. Uh, many of our neighbors have basements, and uh, they won't be getting into their buildings for some time yet. So we had six and a half feet of water roll in and then roll right back out. Uh, and then we immediately, immediately got to work. Um, and I would say that the, the first couple of days, morale was pretty low. Uh, and once we clawed through uh, pretty much all the wet cardboard and uh, all the sheetrock and everything came out, uh, <laughs> morale skyrocketed. Uh, it was um, uh, dark and wet and, and dreary. Uh, but, uh, you know, we kind of just, especially this season, uh, we, we knew we really wanted to get started right away and get to work. And uh, Marco, who owns the shop, he was uh, very, very lucky to be able to locate some very talented 
contractors who got to work straight away. And what's the neighborhood like? I mean, with all those people out of their building, is there many people uh, walking around? Or? It's actually, uh, foot traffic-wise, it has been pretty dim uh, in the last couple of weeks. Uh, there are very few people back into the residences, like right around the specific area that the store is. Um, we're starting to see people slowly trickle back. But if you um, if you walk outside the shop after dark on any given Tuesday night, it looks a little bit like a George Romero set with the, uh, the zombie-ish. Uh, it's the Andromeda strain kind of thing. Exactly, exactly. But I mean, I, I know you guys have a really nice website, but I don't think of you so much as an internet or over the phone shop. I think even more as like serving a neighborhood. If there's no neighborhood, what does that mean for you? With it, it remains to be seen. Uh, we, I think our clientele is almost sort of divided in half. I do have citywide and some nationwide like uh, clients who actually buy lots of wine for events, um, come to the store to have actually p- their own private events. We do a lot of classes and tastings in the back. Um, we are having no problem in the last three weeks with normal holiday procedure. I mean, there's a lot of people, and there's been a groundswell of support, so there might even be some uh, additional help this year. Um, so, I mean, I am literally up to my neck in holiday orders, thankfully. Oh, good. Uh, which is great. Uh, now, it remains to be seen sort of after the holiday fades what the neighborhood's going to look like because that is the time that the bread and butter uh, clients, as I would call them, the, the the neighborhood people who we adore and who we rely on to come in regularly, if they're not around, um, there's, you know, there's trouble ahead. Uh, but we'll, we'll uh, so far, everything looks good. Uh, we seem to be moving right along. And what were some of the realities of making that happen? Like uh, taking the sheetrock out, yes, but I mean, how do you even process orders or how do you take phone calls or? Well, there's a whole, there, the first uh, two weeks, basically, it wasn't really even possible. Uh, there, you know, I, I did what I could to uh, take care of what was already in play before the quote unquote disaster hit. Uh, and I just kept moving. Um, I was able to, uh, we, we ended up having a flood sale uh, on the Sunday just after the storm, after the electricity had come back on, and the store was just still, I mean, it was a construction site by that point. And that, I think, was one of the hardest um, days I remember as uh, being involved with wine. Uh, there were all of these things. I think of all these things that I bring into the shop as kind of like my babies. Uh, so it was it was very difficult to be all over the place. It was amazing to have such a huge swell of support. Lots of people came down. It was just it was too much, and frankly, we weren't we weren't prepared for the turnout. So I was watching lots of things uh, with damaged labels. And, uh, and, you know, no overt damage, but damage labels and things that I wanted to sell uh, to get some money rolling in. I watched a lot of wine, a lot of the inventory walk out the door that day. And it was uh, hectic because it wasn't, you know, you, you, be, you, you tend to rely on POS systems in 2012. Um, it was all the way analog. And it didn't uh, didn't work so well. Yeah, I mean, do you bring out the crash kit like they have in restaurants? I mean, what do you do when you can't use the POS to well, just process an order? Uh, you basically uh, use a calculator to figure tax and uh, and get people uh, you know, their wine and out the door. Um, we, there is this new uh, square register thing, which I actually used, um, and it worked like a charm, actually. I, I'm, it's um, You plug a little um, uh, credit card swiper into your headphone jack. Oh, really? Uh, on your iPhone or your iPad. 
and uh, you set up with a tax ID. And the percentage that they take might be a little bit high, but uh, when you're working from a disaster zone, it's nice to be able to take credit cards for sure. And what's the delivery situation been back? Now that you sold everything out on the flood sale, have you been able to restock the shelves? I have. Uh, it's been a little bit, you know, usually uh, come November, uh, I'm pretty liberal about um, stocking the shelves uh, wherever there's uh, necessary holes or wherever there's um, some wines that I think uh, have a little bit more of a seasonal bent or level of interest. Uh, I've been moving a little bit slower. Um, we were able to save, I'd say, you know, lost probably half of our inventory. So uh, the building uh, itself is five floors. Um, a fair amount of considerably uh, um, important wine to the program actually was removed uh, and put upstairs uh, and fared well. What is the shop about? I mean, normally, uh, you know, you've been there for a little while now. You've build up your own style. Uh, I always think of it as the shop with the the antique car in the showroom. I sure, mean, what's sure. the store about? The store, I think, um, it's about a couple things. Uh, we, Marco and Rebecca, uh, his wife, uh, Rebecca Robertson, uh, were really, really adept at putting together just a beautiful space where just about everyone that walks the door is beguiled by it. Um, um, there's a lot of unique aspects to it as a shop that you wouldn't really see in a lot of American wine shops. Um, there is uh, an event space, or I hate to use that terminology, but we'll call it an enotaka or a back room where um, it's absolutely beautiful. So lots of people um, over the years, word of mouth wise, have ended up wanting to book events. Um, so we do a fair amount of those, although most of those are way late now until uh, January because we're still finishing off the room. Um, on, a, on a level of, of the shop itself, I mean, I came from uh, some years running programs in restaurants, and uh, I saw an opportunity when I met with Marco, I guess it's been five years almost, uh, to really just sort of take the sort of curatory level of what I wanted to do with uh, the restaurant programs I had been lucky enough to work on and, uh, and apply that to a retail setting which uh, is, it works pretty well, actually. Um, it, you know, it can be a little bit exhausting, um, I think. I, I have so many fantastic personal relationships with my clientele, and uh, I'm really able to, to offer, you know, wholehearted suggestions and to really sort of uh, take them down a road they may not have normally reached for themselves. So, it's been it's been incredible. It's uh, I think a lot of people would uh, looked at me and shrugged when I said I was moving from restaurants into retail. I think uh, the the traditional notion is the the other direction, but uh, it's been uh, it's been fantastic, and I've really had uh, a, an open opportunity to run the program exactly how I see fit. I know a lot of uh, young wine directors or psalms in this city don't exactly have that. Um, it's not that easy to come by. It's not that easy to break into. So um, it's been exciting. Um, you know, it's, you know, the, the thing that I remain the most excited about in, uh, in being in this business is turning people on to new things, whether it's an extension of something that they already like and love or wholly something completely else. So you really feel like you are taking in a way, a, a restaurant, what we'd associate with a restaurant mentality, like breaking new things to people 
as opposed to selling established brands and you're moving that into a retail setting? Absolutely. I mean, that that was the goal and I think it's 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 mostly been achieved. I mean, there's this certain pension in retail that you're going to need to please everybody and that's absolutely still exists, I'll tell you. And that I will say for the seaport, it's a great community of a lot of open-minded people. Um, I certainly have a lot of clientele that uh, also doesn't want to hear my ideas about wines from the Canary Islands or, uh, you know, uh, the Austrian wine that I actually brought down here. There's still a lot of people clamoring for uh, Stag's Leap, um, you know, and, and vintage wines from, uh, from Burgundy and Bordeaux. And uh, it's it's a nice even mix in the end. You you really get to operate on all levels of the business. So you're not telling those people to take a hike, but no, you're no, still no. at the same time carving out your own niche. And what would that niche be like? I think uh, again, I've been I've been afforded this amazing opportunity to to really really just uh, show the wines that I think actually you know we hear a lot about terroir you know in this industry, and uh, if the word gets bandied about too much, I think it can become kind of like you know the unobtainable. But I really I, I, I'm I'm only interested in showing these snapshots of places in the world. Um, that's what that's what I find the uh, most exciting. I mean, you, you really, it's um, to me, I look at curating a wine list, like, uh, putting together a, a postcard a book of pictures of places you've been. Um, and luckily I've been to a lot of these places, but, uh, I still have a lot more to visit. Where are some of those places? I mean, geographically, what do you often return to? Uh, the wine we're drinking actually, uh, at the moment is, Which is oh, fantastic. Thank you. Good, good. Really I was actually, the, I, uh, I, I got, I got to waylay, I got to like avoid the middleman on that one that was actually put into my hands by Christine Saz when we went to, my wife and I actually visited, uh, Vakao, uh, I guess two winters ago. We went to this place that I had considered hollow ground for like all of these years during a couple of my programs and, uh, went there in the middle of winter. And, and it was just, it was almost, to me, it was almost spiritual. And you're talking um, about Nikolaev. Yeah, absolutely. Visit Nikolaev, a couple other producers too, Johannes Hirsch. Um, I was thinking about him the other day. He had this amazing tasting room uh, where, uh, you know, he if you're familiar with his wines, I'm sure you are. He uh, he uses grapes from the Geisberg and Heiligenstein. And he has created this tasting room uh, on his on his property where you basically are forced to sort of focus on the vineyard sites from a little bit of a distance. Is that true? Yeah, the windows have the names uh, of the particular vineyard sites that are due in, exactly in front of it. And uh, to sit there and to, you know, you see these names on bottles, you revere the wines for years, but to be able to sit there and to actually, you know, to focus on the site, and that's where that came from, all those fantastic experiences. I think that was that was huge for me. Um, I, I Nikolai Hoff certainly to me is uh, one of the greatest producers of Austria, and certainly in, in any conversation about biodynamics, they deserve to be involved. Uh, you know, it was a, an amazing opportunity to have Christine Saz drive us around in a beaded up old truck to all these vineyard sites. It was great. What do you think sets them apart besides biodynamics, which we hear a lot about from them in that context? But is there something else that they're doing that really puts them in that upper echelon? I think uh, a combination of that and tradition, like years and years and years of tradition. It's not like they're bending out of their way to do something uh, that hasn't been set in stone for a long time. And I'm, you know, I think they, they began with Steiner principles in the 70s. 
But I mean, there's a tradition of the winery much longer than that, which actually to me brings up this, this, this thing I talk about a lot lately, where it's, it's fantastic that we have all these beautiful, natural, unsulfited or, you know, still sulfited uh, wines made with such, you know, tenacity and verve. Uh, I also still truly love classic wine. Um, the portfolios for me that speak to me the absolute most are, are those that are able to find a balance of those things. Um, I, I probably shouldn't name names, but I, I really, uh, I really, I think that it's important to sort of remain in touch with your roots. Um, I, we all know that wine continues to change and that's one of the exciting things about actually, uh, being a part of this business. I mean, it never stops evolving, but you know, I'm still a fan of, you know, the same wines that I, you know, I stole from my dad's, you know, little tiny collection when I was a kid, you know. Do you think that the classics are kind of in under siege in a way? Or? I think to some extent, I think, uh, for, I mean, it's definitely a generational thing. I mean, it's just, it is hands down. Um, there's plenty of people, say, over 40 or in their late 30s who are looking for both things. I think there are, you know, I do, I, I realized recently that the tide had changed a little bit when somebody had uh, thrown open the door and asked where my collection of Occupinti wines was. Got it. And I'd never seen the person before. As if that was the new market stalwart, and love those wines. We do stock them; they're, they're fantastic. Um, but that—that uh, that definitely, to me, is a telling tale of uh, of, of a, a youthful direction of looking for a specific style. In many senses, because it's a youthful winery. Absolutely. I mean, the one in Sicily. Yeah. Uh, so, how did you get to this point in your career? I mean, what was the kind of first light bulbs on the wine thing? Were you always about wine? Were you? Doing some other stuff? What happened? I was doing uh, some other stuff, actually. It's funny because I've listened to a couple of your fantastic uh Oh, you're podcasts. the one. Because we yeah. saw we had yeah, one yeah. download no, no, last no, week. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm one of the guys. I think there's many, actually. Uh, but uh, I've noticed a lot of people talking about music and uh, having uh, been in some sort of artistic uh, direction. And then, you know, the obvious restaurant work to uh, help sustain that um, at a younger age. And I have a lot in common with that. Uh, I think... Uh, I, you know, I went to the Art Institute of Chicago. I went to Columbia College in Chicago. I had studied film. I played in a bunch of rock and roll bands in Chicago. And then, you know, I moved to San Francisco. And, you know, all the, all the while I was working in uh, restaurants. And I was lucky enough to work in restaurants where uh, wine was actually uh, loved and revered. Now, the, the early days of my restaurant career, there was no... Uh, no uh, I didn't work for anybody that uh, was well-known. Uh -huh. uh, and uh, I worked at a certain amount of cafes and just sort of uh, places to, with really good, humble food and humble wine lists. Um, I moved uh, to Seattle, actually, in 1998 and immediately uh, took up a job at a restaurant called Monsoon, uh, which was run by uh, a gentleman named Eric Bon and his sister Sophie, who were from, uh, I believe, Da Nang in Vietnam. Um, and they had come over uh, as boat people and had been in Seattle cooking and, and working on certain uh, uh, kitchen programs for a couple of years. And they opened this restaurant and their food was amazing. It was just absolutely, to me, it was just mind blowing. And Eric, uh, it's, he sets a precedent for me for hot headed boss. I mean, oh, yeah? this guy was like, he's basically a pressure cookie, cooker with like faulty wiring. Well, if you're making rice all the time. Yeah. And that. And that he, um, he, yeah, he uh, basically um, had started this wine program based on an initial love of all these California cult wines, which to me, you know, in retrospect, 
uh, probably had, and Washington and Oregon, but probably in retrospect had very little to do with the food that was being made, which was this incredible hybrid of France and, and Vietnam, which you would expect to be entwined, and uh, certainly the amazing ingredients that you can find in Seattle or elsewhere in the, in the Northwest. Um, but he had built this this program, in, and it was the time in Seattle, 1998, in which like Amazon was the, like coming up, and mm -hmm. uh, there were lots of people working for Microsoft and so on and so forth. And a lot of these folks didn't care that they were drinking Harlan or uh, you know P Peter Michael Le Pavot with their Vietnamese food, which is totally fine. Uh, you know, in, in in retrospect, it was kind of an amazing time to to look out at a table in a Vietnamese restaurant and see all these bottles of like coveted cult California masterpiece. Uh, but, uh, you know, as the decade flipped, I think uh, he became really focused on um, uh, suddenly wanting to pair wine with the food uh, oh, more specifically. Uh, and that's where uh, we started sort of uh, working on the list together right around like 2000. And uh, we, you know, we kept a certain amount of uh, California wine and, 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 and wines that I, you know, declare do not really work perfectly with the food. And we uh, started uh, focusing on things like this Nikolai Hof, um, things from the Creme Style and the Vakau and, and things from Germany. Uh, certain French provincial wines, Alsatian wines, uh, which I've been thinking about a lot lately, and how they've fallen so completely out of vogue. Um, it's it's uh, it's almost amazing uh, to to watch what's happened there in the last ten years. So you're working at at Monsoon. Working at Monsoon. How long were you there? I was there uh, longer than I normally recommend to anyone my age. Uh, they, I was there actually Just around a seven years. Yeah, I think uh, probably more. I mean, it was an amazing experience, and there was a definite evolution within it. Uh, I think uh, uh, you know you don't watch a great chef stay in the same kitchen for too long. Generally, when they're when they're in their youth. Uh, and when they're learning, I think the more experiences you can garner, the more empiricals, uh, you know, working in a variety of places, the the better off you're going to be in the long run, the more knowledge you can gain at very least. Do you think that uh, maybe stick around once you get a piece of the ownership pie, but maybe yeah, for that for... restaurant, I don't think it would have ever been of interest because uh, it was such a high pressure situation. It was, uh, you know, as I said, I had an extremely talented and uh, learned to love him and fantastic um, hot-headed boss um, uh, who very much was working in a family capacity with his own family. So I don't see how I would have ever been able to break in there. I definitely, uh, uh, you know, have uh, felt uh, in the past that I, I would like to move into some level of restaurant ownership at some point down the line. I mean, it's uh, it's it's certainly I've I'm the one thing I miss about it uh, uh, restaurants in retail, other than the fact that I do get to uh, run a lot of events. We can play shop all day and then jump straight into event mode at night. Is that sort of focused daily uh, grind uh, that a great restaurant has? Um, you know, ever evolving, but really, you know what your you know what your day is. Um, that that never bored me. It really it's it's nice to have that sort of specific routine and live uh, uh, through the situations that are different um, as that day goes on. You know, so at some point you kind of put the kibosh on the film school idea and, and went full-time into the restaurant world. Uh, what was your thinking there? I mean, why, why did that come about? I did. Uh, it's, uh, it, I was somehow distressed, I think, at the time that I was in film school to figure out that 
there were so many other people going to film school. Oh, really? Yeah. These I classes actually, seem pretty full. The classes were full, and uh, it just I, I, I seem to have found myself within a particular educational context in which I learned an amazing amount technically very fast. And then I was, you know, I think any art school situation, I think education is always amazing to some level. But when it's a creative endeavor... I think it's uh, it's very difficult after a second, third year, after you gain some sort of technical proficiency, to really educate about creativity. Uh, I, you know, it's very. I I did. I would get. Uh, I would get straight A's on. Uh, you know, aesthetic and uh, and. Uh, uh, aesthetic, basically. I would get. I would do really well as far as the visual aspect and the technical aspect. And I would get like <laughs> straight Fs on narrative story value. Oh, really? So, yeah, I just never really. Uh, I I just wanted to make pretty pictures that moved. Um, let, let me ask you because I remember that time, and I thought about going to film school at that time because I was super into film. And I remember like seemed like everybody had a script or some idea of being a director at that that time, that generation. Why isn't film culture more vibrant today? If our whole generation went to film school, why why is it just Transformers Two and nobody who knows Godard on the street? I I don't understand that. Where did that generation go? I think a lot of people uh, grew up comfortable and weren't able to starve for their art. I think there's a, a a great. I mean, as far as mainstream film goes, there's been such a commercialization that I mean, a lot of people that I know that studied film are are working and working well, and they're very talented, but they're not necessarily very often working on the things they want to be, even ten, fifteen years down the line. Um, one of my closest friends is somebody that I, you know, I've known ever since I we got into a fist fight with each other in my mom's yard, and like when I was 11 years old. And he's here uh, in the city, and he uh, has a film production company with his brother. They make all these fantastic uh, videos for you know musical artists, and they do a lot of commercial work. But I can always tell he's pining to to make the magnum opus, you know. So you think a lot of guys who kind of came up on Fellini ended up making Mission Impossible, or what happened? That, that, or a lot of guys that came up on Fellini ended up in the wine trade. Because I would honestly say that uh, there's a, there seems to be, I mean, you've probably seen the steady growth of interest in that. I think there's the big irony for me. It's like I ran away from film school at the end because I thought that I just couldn't, I, I didn't think it was a creative thing anymore, and there was just too many people trying to do it. And then I moved into an industry eventually where uh, I can't I can't tell you how many more people have entered this uh, this wine workforce in the last you know decade. But is the same thing going to happen if there was all those peeps in film school, kind of bright eyed and idealistic about uh, you know the greatness of of the auteur theory, and uh, everybody went in, and then it never really panned out as as something that was viable at an artistic and commercial level. Now that all these uh, People of same economic upbringing and education are are moving into wine and food, and that's the cool thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now that the terroir theory is on everybody's lips, are we going to see the same thing? And just the people just not willing to do it on the cheap? I think you're going to see some of that, absolutely. If there's not enough uh, health to the industry to actually uh, to support all the people, like anything else, it's probably simple economics. I mean, the the the, the superstars will will rise to the top. I always think I see a lot of uh, resumes with WSET uh, certification on it, um, and I think you know while it would never be smart to say that education of any kind is not the way to go, 
I, I also think that within the industry we've chosen, and with film, uh, and with any sort of arts, the practical application of what you've learned technically um, is the greatest generator of knowledge. I think you, um, if you do not have empirical experience, which takes time, in wine, I think it, it takes a number of years. I mean, I, I have absolutely no doubts that I have a long way to go. Uh, but I, th I think the, the, it takes years to really empirically taste things enough to, to experience them, to talk about them, to, um, to be able to see enough reactions uh, in, in, in your clientele or your friends or anyone that you're introducing wine to. I think um, book smarts are incredible. Uh, but if you uh, if you know something, you can't really know it completely unless you experience it. And so I don't envy uh, a huge swath of, of of young people getting into this industry. Uh, I feel very lucky to have worked on some programs, to worked in some restaurants uh, that uh, had fantastic programs from the kitchen to the front of the floor. It's been uh, you know I've never worked with a chef whose food wasn't satisfying to a, lie, a large swath of people. I've never, I don't know if you have, uh, I'm sure so many people have had the experience of not working for a program that was ultimately successful. And, for, and I, I, I can't imagine what it's like to repeatedly go to a table and just be uh, you know, met with indifference and, and, uh, and uh, lack of uh, interest. It's, uh, I've always been able to be confident because I've always been lucky enough to be a part of a team that actually, you know, had their stuff together. So you're saying you didn't build your palate through a book? No, no. Certainly, I, you know, I, I've, I'm, I love reading. Um, I think, uh, you know, there's, there's a couple of books that I still recommend to lots of people. Books that you can engage from aficionado to novice. Uh, but I think practical tasting and trying things is, is a long road. Um, Certainly, I don't recommend going to, uh, to too many giant trade shows and tasting 400 wines at once. That's not the way to do it. You're going to exhaust yourself really quick doing that. Uh, but uh, I think uh, just you know, get interested. You can definitely read a lot. I just wonder sometimes a lot of these educational programs, if it might just be a little bit more useful to give yourself a level of discipline, get the right books, and then spend the tuition money on a, a whole bunch of wine. And what were some of those other restaurants that you drank some of that wine at? Uh, where I worked, or mm -hmm. uh, August, uh, actually here in uh, in New York in the West Village. I worked there for a couple of years. Um, what era was that? Because I know they had a couple shifts. That would be the Tony Liu era of August. Oh, oh, oh okay. Yeah, and uh, Tony Liu. Uh, to me, I haven't seen him in, in some time. He's a very busy man, but uh, works he, for McNally. Now. He does. He does. I think he's over at Polino now, and uh, had been. Um, at the other Italian establishment, Mirandi, uh, before that uh, and after August. Uh, he was fantastic. Um, that actually was such a He was a good guy? Yeah, great guy. Absolutely. I can't, I, you know, I can't say enough about him. His food was great. His enthusiasm was always there. Uh, August itself, you know, is in a very old building. Uh, and so there was always some element of August that's falling apart. I'm told they actually revamped uh, recently. I haven't been down to see it yet. But uh, Tony was a roll-up-his-sleeves guy. Uh, he put on his whites uh, and did not care if there were cameras around. 
um, from from my estimation. It was uh, it was great to work with, and he was so interested in 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 foods from across the European theater and elsewhere that it was like a dream to be able to provide wine to to suit them because I I didn't you know it was nice to be able to focus on a lot of different uh, European realms. So you were rocking the wine program there. That was I really loved it. I thought it was great. I really liked being on the floor. It was a romantic room that everyone seemed to be happy at. It was a really charming place. Yeah. I remember there was some kind of like piece of wood post that was like right in my face because I'm a tall person at right. our table, at our foretop, but I still found it a very pleasant experience. Fantastic. Like it, that you kind of forgave it for its sure. quirks, yes. you know what I mean? Urban rusticity at its uh, at its rustic best. The food was good. Thanks. Tart flambe. Yeah. He used to rock Those that. were great. I think he nailed that better than anyone in this city. Well, that's sure. actually saying a lot because there's some dudes, you know. Exactly. So uh, how did you find yourself in New York? What was the move from Seattle to New York? It was, uh, it was a sense of uh, stagnant uh, with, uh, and, and wanting a new adventure, coupled with the fact that my now wife actually uh, was offered a job in structural genomics at Columbia University. I almost did that yeah, yeah, yesterday, actually. I was like, oh, why don't I drop all this and I'll just pick up something easy to... I think about it all the time. But although <laughs> nothing will ruin your like childhood notion of laboratory science, uh, like the whole white smock, pristine, like perfect environment thing, like sci-fi movie thing, than going up to a university level science lab. It's like oh yeah, a bunch of old Russian guys and some equipment that just looks kind of like like it doesn't really do anything. It all looks broken. Is that because the funding's poor? Or I don't wise, think so. I think it, it actually does work. It's just not, it's not. Is it like Fonzarelli? You have to go up and like hit it exactly, with your, exactly. your fist? Oh, I love that, play. the jukebox thing. Yeah, <laughs> you got to just whack it on the side. No, if you hold it like this, it, it comes across with the wavelength just fine. Totally. So, okay, you, you know, uh, what made you do the retail thing? You've done some nice restaurant work. You seem super vibed on it. You know, you worked with some good food. What made you say like, yeah. You know, I'm ready for retail. I think actually it might, uh, that I might include my wife in that conversation too. Oh, yeah. Uh, there's a, you know. She was uh, like the structural genomics of this relationship exactly, required exactly. you to be around more. Exactly. She might have been a little bit more interested in me not coming home at three o'clock in the morning all the time. Uh-huh. Uh, and I was, uh, I was, you know, you know, I'm 38 now. I'm, uh, I was interested uh, in, in that as well. Although there's definitely a trade-off. <laughs> I'm never awake at four o'clock in the morning, but I am quite often at work seven days a week. And Let me ask you a question. I mean, you seem like an articulate guy with things to say. A vision is very in step with the times, if not a little ahead of it. Why is it that we don't hear about you getting, uh, you know, quotes in the paper or for magazine articles? Do you think that's a hazard of retail that you just kind of disappear off the, the map of the public? I I wouldn't blame certainly just just media. I, I blame myself. I, I you know if there's blame to assess. You're I, a workaday guy. I, I am. I, I am actually down there, and uh, and uh, as much as uh, I would probably love to, um, to 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 bring more people down there to see what we're really doing, I'm absolutely in favor of that. Um, I, I I I get caught in a lot of minutia. Uh-huh. There is an You're enormous like, amount of minutia to run. How can I run this credit store. card today? Now that I just had a flood, exactly like that kind of minutia. Yeah, that kind of minutia. Um, but uh, yeah, there's endless amounts of things that that take the day. Uh, I feel very fortunate. This week, we actually uh, had a had a Times article uh, that was oh, printed uh, just yesterday. Oh, cool. In this weekend's edition. Um, I always wanted to see my name as Mister Ibsen in the yeah, Times. Yeah, yeah. Nailed it. Yeah, was Hedda Gabler in there too? Or uh, no, 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 no. Hey, so uh, 
you do a little bit of work with the Italian wines at the shop. Did you pick that up at the August days? Because that doesn't sound like that was part of the monsoon thing. That, yeah, absolutely, absolutely not. In fact, I came to New York with uh, almost a perilous uh, uh, lack of knowledge in, in terms of Italian wine. Because and, it's popular here, Italian? Yeah, well, absolutely. I think it's, it's ingrained. So you uh, kind of have to know it if you want to. I think so. I think you need to work your way around that. And uh, in spite of the fact that there's, what, 300 indigenous varietals and that you can't really generalize about anything. I think there's more than that. Yeah, probably. Uh, And uh, I really, I actually, during August, I I really took a liking to it. Now, I I mean, if it were me, I would be hovering around the north uh, pretty much all the time. Yeah, uh, is that true? You're not down with the Sicily thing? Well, Sicily is the great north of the south. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I like how you did that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Elevation-wise. You know, if you take the compass and you turn it around like this <laughs> exactly it still points the same way exactly it's like the volcanic alps down there so um yeah i, I became wholly interested in that i think that's where it starts uh i had uh actually uh, marco was gracious enough to send me to an estate that his father uh, had owned in in tuscany a couple years ago i took this drive up to liguria and uh i think that to me to me right now is the sort of where I where I love Italian wines the most, um, and I'll tell you why. It's actually because I went. I, Pierre Logano uh, took me around to some of his vineyard sites. His, his winery is Bisson, and he's got a, a wine shop in Chiavri. He took me around in this big brown like Mercedes Benz with a translator who couldn't translate very well at all, who I think was his girlfriend, uh, and uh, took me around to all these sites. And we talked to a lot of people working in the in the vineyard sites, and what I noticed is that they all cared more about the olive trees. Uh, and uh, I love that level of uh, of humbleness about something. I love wine that works on a table. Um, I, I certainly love wine with polish and finesse. I think there's one in your glass right now um, that took you know you know 15 years to make, but. I really react well to that. Uh, that uh, the P- I, I wish I spent more time in the field with those guys. Because it's not only some good wine, some good food, but it's also, as far as I can tell, one of the most beautiful places on earth when yeah. you're driving up that road to Liguria. Yeah, exactly. Oh my God, look, the sunset. tunnel. Oh my God, look, tunnel. <laughs> like, uh, endless. Why don't you say, talk to me a little bit about the old Stein Riesla? So, uh, so Stein Riesla, uh, I'm assuming Riesla is like ancient text. It's 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 Riesling. Uh, I think that's what you actually have here is a von Stein uh, uh, vineyard site Riesling from '99. 1999. 1999. Got a little time on it. Little time on it, and it's a Uh So not too too ripe, but it actually they put it. Uh, they wanted to play with this one, so they put it in uh, in some nice old big wood barrels and left it there for ten years. So this was actually just bottled uh, in 2010, if you will. Wow! And uh, it's th- not every day that you take a 1999 and then bottle it in 2000. No, 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 no. I oh, think of uh, a white. It's a it's a scientific experiment that paid off. I could just sit and smell it for probably half a day and be happy because it's killer. Yeah, it's really good. Well, I'm glad you like it. Uh, I, it's Saturday morning wine. Yeah, well, I'll take it anytime, really. You know, <laughs> August and everything after. All right. You know what I'm saying? Okay. So, uh, what's next for the old shop there? Uh, we're continuing to put it back into the condition that we want it to be, although yeah. we're we're very close, uh, very close. Uh, the, the back room still needs a little work. There's uh, some events that got a little, as I mentioned, waylaid uh, in the last month and a half, and we're excited to get that up and running. There is a... Uh, deputy mayor is having the deputy mayor is having a uh, a party on Wednesday, which I'm 
I'm uh, anxiously uh, waiting to put together. Um, and uh, we're going to continue to just sort of uh, keep the program good. I mean, I, you know, we'd, we really would like to do um, probably as a future goal is without, you know, inundating people's email boxes, uh, actually work a little bit more on sort of a focused notion of providing things without people having to come to the shop because um, who knows about next year's hurricane. Is that the future? Uh, I don't know if it is for everybody. I certainly know there's a glut of wine online. Uh, I think that if you were smart, you could certainly put something together unique and do it well. I, you know, I think of Selection Masal. Uh, I think what they're doing is special. I think people uh, that I know, at least, can't wait to get their emails. Where you can't say that about a whole host of other people that seem to be selling wine as some sort of perfunctionary uh, part of their of their intake. They realized a, a market existed, and they and they put it put it up on their site. Uh, I don't think that could be working that well for them. I think on a curatory level, there's nothing that that bugs me more than if you if I get an email selling wines that are sort of look like they've been curated by somebody within the industry and you look at them and I'm very aware that they all came from the same distributor yeah. and he probably had a list of five wines to choose from and those are the five there. Um, so that bugs me. you don't like the fakery. Yeah. They're like, hey, yeah. I went out and found this yeah. and oh, look, it was handed to me as well. Exactly. There's no such thing as bad publicity. Of course not. But So, I mean, has the rise of narrative that seems real been real like because it seems to me like uh used to be like all about what was in the glass and we were going to give it a point score but now it seems like there's so much more emphasis on the story the context and making that seem authentic is that is that a real thing or am i just imagining i think across food and wine people are more interested in what it is that they have and the story the story is important i honestly think uh if you are going to sell these things at least these family producer wines i mean if you're going to sell these things um honestly uh and 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 well you, you really you owe it to uh, to get the story straight to really represent these uh, these estates and these families and these farms as well as you possibly can. I think more and more people are interested in that. I mean, people live busy lives, though. I have plenty of customers who are like, "Just tell me what I should drink tonight." You know, I, I don't I don't need to hear about the three three generations ago. Uh, but there is a devout. Uh, amount more interest than there was even when I started. I, I, um, my dad, actually, who uh, worked in, in sales and marketing for uh, his pretty much his entire career, he actually uh, worked uh, in his last uh, job. He was a, a vice president at a company that sold uh, a lot of French fries to McDonald's. Uh, I've been thinking a lot lately uh, how it's possible that I had some sort of teenage reaction uh, that uh, though I never really examined it, I felt a little dismayed by the sort of uh, food culture of my youth and of our parents' generation um, that uh, they began to rely on basic, based on the fact that, uh, of convenience. I think um, if there's one thing I don't want to be just simply convenient, it's the thing that I use to sustain myself. I'd rather actually... Uh, delve deeper. You don't want to con consume the convenient plastic. You uh, want to consume something that seems a little real into exactly, your own body. Exactly. And it's, you know, it's important though to also note, I think, that it can get a little hokey. You mm -hmm, know, mm -hmm. I, the pendulum always swings. It does, 
it, it, you know, I never really react that well to preciousness. Uh, it, it, you know, we saw, we were talking uh, at the shop yesterday, uh, Luke and I, about uh, a jar of pickles that we saw, Vlasic Artisan Series pickles. Oh, really? Yes, in like a little wooden uh, box with like some raffia bow tied around it, and I, like $9, Artisan Series. But I remember like uh, when microbrew started happening, the big breweries started being like artisanal brew, yeah. you know, because yeah. they felt like they needed to compete. Yeah. And it was yeah, something no. that ended up changing the marketplace. Like microbrews ended up changing beer for yeah. Americans, you know. Absolutely. It's, it's very easy to tell what's actually artisanal. I don't think the word needs to go away, but it, it's become a little omnipresent. We are actually romancing the, the late 90s when everything was extreme, uh-huh, like right. f- flavor blasted. Yeah. I want some flavor blasted wine but i mean what what changed us on that because in some ways we want extreme viticulture but we're not looking for those kind of extreme flavors seems like people dialed back the alcohol dialed back the big fruit because i remember like everybody was bungee jumping with like 100 point wine and everyone was like extreme sports i mean what happened was it sometimes i'm like is it steroids did people like think that these things were manipulated in a way that provided for these extraordinary results yeah uh it's hard to say exactly. I, I would I would not want to generalize. I have noticed um, that is that previously, a couple of years ago, or you know more, no matter where I was, um, it was generally people from Europe or visiting from overseas who would sort of uh, uh, shun the the percentage of alcohol listed on certain American or South American. They weren't or down New for World. that high. Exactly. They just sort of, um, they may have been interested in trying it, but there was certainly a judgment in place, without a doubt. Now, it's uh, it's it's pretty much uh, rampant uh, within our, uh, you know, our context of New, York, of New York, or probably San Francisco, Seattle, Oregon, even LA now seems to have fantastic food culture. Um, I'm pretty much sure that if we drive, you know, across the middle, uh, unless we go to Chicago, um, probably nobody cares about the amount of alcohol. And in fact, they might implore more. Uh, for me, I think I have this conversation all the time. It's it's about balance. Um, I certainly vastly prefer um, elementally, even if I'm not looking at it, I seem to prefer for myself uh, uh, wines with lower degrees of alcohol on the table with fantastic food or without food. Uh, I think uh, this conversation is important because there's a lot of people making wines from their particular microclimates and making wines that uh, are 13.5 and above. Uh, we'll, we'll make the cutoff there at this point. Maybe it should be 14. And if the wine is balanced, you know, I'm probably not going to drink it all day or suggest to anybody on food pairing levels that that's the thing that's going to you know, keep them going. But uh, if it's balanced, if it's polished, if it's beautiful, if somebody really worked at it uh, and, and made something of beauty, I don't think that that should just be automatically, you know, lambasted. So where do you find yourself making your own program distinctive, or is that even important? Because here's what I see: there was a whole bunch of classics that uh, at least our generation got to know, uh, and then. Uh, we know them quite well, maybe as brands that we've never tried or as things that we have tried, but they're known. And then there was the rise of kind of an avant-gardist natural wine uh, thing and, and also some burgundy. And now those have become kind of enshrined in the hall. 
right. of pillars. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you set your own list apart when it seems like everybody does want to have Acapinti on the list now? What What do you do to be different than the, the store that's in a different hood? I think on either side of the Acupinti, you have uh, to the left, you would have a, a, a slightly more traditional take on it, which may be from Ariana's uncle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, the Coast Wines, I sell probably uh, as much or possibly even more than I do uh, the, the Nieces. Um, they're, they're, they're fantastic, they're measured. Um, they're, they're really quite elegant, and they're, you know, they're, but they're traditional wines in my mind. Uh, and then on the right of it, you, you, you have, uh, Zev's producer, you have, uh, you have Frank Cornelison and, and you, you know, maybe that's Aetna, not Vittoria, but you just sort of examine, uh, all aspects past and future, um, and really just sort of, uh, create a swath, uh, really show people what was happening in Sicily, what's going to happen in Sicily. And, uh, and, that's probably kind of where I like to hang, you know. You know, I look at it and, you know, there's not a day that goes by that I don't walk around the shop and take a look and see what hole I might want to fill. Now, on a Marco might think that uh, that isn't always so completely necessary to, to be um, – uh, my level of cohesive can be a little bit extreme. Um, but I've always just sort of loved the notion of curating something and really, you know, not – it's a constant evolution. You never stop getting it right. Does that mean that you're uh, tending to buy the, the – like, let me ask you this. Do you reorder the same wine once you find a wine that you love, or do you keep it in flux? We do. I'd say there's probably a uh, a percentage that if I thought about it, I could come up with that's somewhere around like 45% on that. Um, I do probably frustrate. Uh, a, a, a slight amount of my clientele who's not wholly interested in hearing the story, um, in the ability to uh, keep providing the same thing. Um, so you're saying you mix it up sometimes? I do. I do. I try to leave my mind open to new discovery because obviously, if you remain too far in in favor of what new classics or old classics, then you're going to miss something with everything always changing. But uh, it's you know, it's important to try to please everybody at the same time. So when something is a smashing success um, uh, through and through, we try to keep it running as much as we can. But we, we generally favor wines uh, to sell that uh, don't have huge amounts of wine available. Uh, so that can be a little bit of a headache. So in terms of pleasing the customer, that makes sense. But what in, what about in terms of pleasing the trade? Is it possible for a small, medium-sized shop that carries some inventory, but not a ton of inventory like yourself to really support 50, 60 different distributors that we might find in New York today? It's absolutely possible. Um, it's, it'd be a little bit of time, a little bit time consuming. I think, um, we deal with somewhere around 35 now. Okay. Um, and, uh, uh, most of which at this point, finally, uh, I do not have to engage all the time. Uh, we can, um, enjoy, a, sort of a friendly level of business. And I absolutely, uh, uh, have some great friends that work within the industry and the distribution level. Um, but it, uh, I was actually, when I first moved to New York, I had had the whole thing set up in Seattle. Now in Seattle, it's what, 15 great restaurants at any good time. Probably there was like 12 distributors that you would want to buy from, and that's even probably making it a little bit large of a number. And so it didn't take very long to to wade through the personalities back and forth, and I, no one brought me wine that I wouldn't want to see. There was no 
Uh, they was, understood your palate. Exactly. And there was very few leverage sort of scenarios where I seek something, that's fine, I'll get it for you, but you have to take this because that's idealistically never never going to play with us at Well, all. is that also because you were dealing with wines like Austrian and German wine that there wasn't like the Colt Cab allocation? Yeah, to, to some extent, but I think it was a little bit easier to get what you wanted. And certainly I would expect New York to be a tougher racket. I mean, there's so many distributors. You know, I actually run into... Like I uh, met this guy Ross, who started Critical Mass a, a couple weeks ago. I loved everything he showed me. Everything he showed me, I thought they were great. I was, I, I did not envy his battle ahead of him. Um, there are so there's so much competition. There's so much uh, leverage buying here. It's it's um, it's awe inspiring. I feel like there's a lot of dudes that I know that have been around the business for a while. Like, oh, now it's time to be an importer. Yeah. Is that? What yeah. you see too, yeah. just small Without portfolios. Now I got four wines. Now I got five. Now I got fifteen. That's, Absolutely. As opposed to the era of like, hey, I bring in a huge vodka portfolio and a huge liquor portfolio, and now I'm also I have some wine at with my ten salesmen. Now it's like there's a dude yeah. who answers his cell phone, and and there's a lot of those dudes. Absolutely. I always uh, I've been kept from that side of the business uh, in the back of my mind, thinking that that first year and a half would be really brutal. Um, you know, especially within the New York context of the business. Uh, but uh, there's a lot of people that do it really well too. Uh, you know, it's it's amazing. I always I do envy them a little bit at this time of year when they're like watching their Netflix queue that they uh, they had idealistically put together all right. year long. So, uh, what's next for you? Any ever thoughts to? On your own shop or just off the record? No one's going to listen to this. <laughs> I would absolutely love to do something like that. Uh, I, I Occasionally, as I mentioned earlier, too, I, I miss being around uh, the context of a regular kitchen, too, um, and really just sort of uh, honing in on uh, something special in collaboration with somebody that has that talent. Uh, I think I can cook, but um, I'm very slow at it, really slow. Um, I have the greatest level of respect for great chefs, I think uh, without great food, um, what we do would probably still be of interest to people, but maybe it wouldn't have such a way to shine, you know. Uh, so I miss that element, that uh, that that restaurant grind. Um, although I am getting a little older, so maybe a couple weeks on the floor, and I'll tell you something different. So you know, you are a guy who's close to forty that's done significant sommelier work. There's not so many of those dudes around because a lot of at times I feel like I'm talking to a young, fresh face yeah. who's breaking into the Somme world. If you were talking to the younger you, mm-hmm. but now, what would you say in a piece of advice? Uh, well, you mentioned ownership before. I mean, I think that that's probably an important thing for a lot of people for to, to keep uh, a healthy uh, you know work environment alive. I mean, it's just not... Um, it's not something, you know, I mentioned that I'm swimming in minutia all the time. It's not something that I still stop to think about all the time, but absolutely. I mean, I think the more you can claim for yourself, the more you're going to be happy later. Um, but the claiming has to be for the right reasons. You, you know, you have to want to be attached um, either from the ground level while you're building a business plan or, you know, if you've joined something that was already instituted. Um, it's, uh, there's no small amount of places to work here. I always feel uh, very lucky in the fact that I, I feel that at least over the last several years of my of, of doing this that I've felt you know imminently hireable. Uh, it's about whether you're just shifting laterally or or, or not really uh, able to step up. Do you feel like there's a lot of lateral movement in a business? And 
I think so. Not so yeah. many opportunities to climb th- the ladder higher. I think uh, the opportunities come once you've made yourself uh, d- deserving of them. I mm-hmm. mean, once you once you can walk into a room and and confidently lay out what you would do for something or, or what your vision is for a restaurant, a shop, or or, or otherwise, I think uh, you're probably going to rise straight to the top. I think there's a, a level of uncertainty that keeps probably people at the same level, but certainly the knowledge base that you've accrued um, is transferable just about anywhere. So let me ask you, you've been around bottles for a long time now. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite drinking story? I think uh, <laughs> there may be a, a lot of them, actually. But uh, I recently, we were outside of San Francisco, actually, in Portales Bay. We went to Hog Island Oyster Company. Oh, okay. And we, it was like, I think it was, like, we, we were over there for a wedding in Sonoma and, and uh, had come in the next day. And it was like, I think it was 10 o'clock in the morning. And uh, we had a bunch of bottles of uh, stuff we had bought at Kermit Lynch's shop in Berkeley. And we're drinking uh, in the fog uh, some uh, some old Merceau uh, in uh, literally uh, 10 o'clock in the morning eating barbecued oysters. Uh, and, uh, and though you're very aware that that's just a moment in time and that if I did that every single day of my life, that would probably get old too. I think, uh, it was a Parthenon drinking experience for me. It was, um, it was, uh, fantastic. Ryan Ibsen was on the show today. He is the wine buyer at Passanella and Son in the South Seaport district of Manhattan. Thank you, sir. Thanks. Thanks for having me. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothat, P-O-D.com which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.